Well, you've come about the advertising, I suppose. Just over six months ago, you undertook our new advertising campaign. We heard from you for the first time yesterday. You sent us some slogans for advertising our dog food. Good. We don't make dog food, Mr. Ferret. We make humbugs. Oh. And you're not thinking of branching out into dog foods? No. And if we were, we would want something more original than Wolf Makes Doggies Bounce With Health! The film involves, but with uneven results, and the laughter never really comes to the boil, Cecil Wilson, The Daily Mail. The film drags in parts, and it suffers from some gratuitous slapstick, evidence of its creator's sketch comedy origins, but Rimmer is astute, ambitious, original, and unsparing. Adam Langer, New York Times. If you're looking for satire, even 50 years later, this film is absolutely devastating. Tom Selinski, best pick. This week, we watched The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. Hello and welcome to Brickcom Goes to the Movies. This is where we watch a film, a British film that made its way from the small screen to the big screen and decide if it was worth it. And with me today is a man who's growing mustard and crest in the shape of the Union Jack on his flannel. It's Rob Heath. And there's always a possibility that the fuzz will have covertly planted habeas corpus upon him. It's Guy Walker. And it's not only myself and Guy, but also our special guest. We're very excited on BritCon Goes to the Movies to be joined by writer, producer, podcaster, and I think it's fair to say film historian. It's presenter of the Best Pick podcast, Tom Selinsky. Hi, Tom. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Do you like the title film historian? I mean, you Yeah, have... I guess so. It's a bit highfalutin. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, uh, I took some things I said spontaneously into a microphone once and then put them in a book. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll take it. Why not? It's a very good book. I can recommend it. I have a signed copy. No, oh, not one of the rare unsigned ones. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, uh, thanks for joining us. Best Pick is probably my favourite film podcast i'd urge anyone with even a passing interest in film to listen to it your film journey on best pick wouldn't have been troubled much by any britcoms but is it a genre you've got particular affection for yeah i mean i, I grew up watching things like uh well it was reruns of faulty towers because i'm not quite that old uh and and all those other british sitcoms that get rerun endlessly like um Dad's Army, and we'll see Arthur Lowe later on, uh, or um, some others do have them, and, and, and all of those. And uh, yeah, there was a sort of spate in the 60s and 70s of taking the cast of those sitcoms and shipping them off abroad and making a usually fairly dreadful film uh, that tended uh, not to, yeah, as you say, trouble award ceremonies over much. Um, but there have been some more um, examples. Knowing I was coming on this, I just had a little think, and one that jumped out at me was um, In the Loop. I don't know if you count yeah. that. We absolutely uh, count it, yeah. We yeah. will be getting to it, well, maybe in the next series, I think. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was very smart because it didn't rely on an international audience's familiarity with the characters in the thick of it, but instead created rough analogues of them and put them in an entirely new situation and was happy to dip into that pool when it was helpful and equally happy to ignore it when it wasn't. And I just thought it worked really, really well. It confused the hell out of me, them changing everybody's names. <laughs> Being such a big um, Thick of It fan. When they, yeah, when they change everyone's names for the first five to ten minutes, that was, that was confusing me. Uh, but speaking of uh, satire, we will be delving into The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. 
um, which Tom is a, a particular favourite of yours, which is why we've got you on. Indeed. Um, but to start us off, guys, looked up some facts and figures uh, to do with this film. Well, let's dive in. So The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer was released on the 12th of November 1970. It has an IMDb score of 6.9, which I think makes it the highest rated film that we've done so far, and a 67% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And other than that, there's very little. There's no box office figures. There's no production cost figures. It's all quite limited. I hadn't even heard of this film uh, until listening to the best pick episode on Patton where, where Tom picked it. So it's definitely better than Patton. I'll give you that for nothing. <laughs> well, <laughs> obviously this is un- unlike some of the films that we've done already. This isn't a direct spin-off by any means, or it isn't even really taking kind of characters or ideas from small screen programs. It's, it's, it's a brand new original idea, but Guy, in terms of background, you've been looking into, as David Frost was executive producer, you've been looking into some of his, um, productions from the 60s and some of the work of Peter Cook as well. Yeah, that's right. So I wanted to look at the satire boom of the 1960s, which started with Beyond the Fringe, which was the stage show featuring Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller. It began life at the Edinburgh Festival in 1960 before making its way to London's West End and then Broadway, New York. It was a massive hit and also ahead of its time in the way it mocked and put fun at authority figures like Cook was doing impressions of Harold Macmillan on stage. Macmillan even went to watch a performance of it and Cook took the piss out of him while he was sat there. Many people ask me, what do I do when I discover there are four young men down at the Fortune Theatre taking the rise out of me on a nightly basis? Well, what I do is I go along and I sit there in the middle of the fourth row with a stupid smile on my fat face pretending it's not happening. Exactly like that is uh, how Cook did it. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Um, yeah, people like Macmillan and then Churchill and then untouchable subjects like war and religion, which the aftermath of war sketch is one of my favourites. We're at war. Oh, my God. Oh, you remember that? <laughs> but, uh, Peter Cook was at the forefront of the satire boom in the early 60s with uh, buying Private Eye magazine and also setting up the, the establishment Comedy Nightclub. Peter Cook, along with John Bird, who was one of the performers at the establishment, would pitch to the BBC a satirical TV show um, trying to move what was going on at the establishment onto the small screen, but nothing came of this until Bird was contacted by producer Ned Sherin, who wanted Bird to be the host and link man of a new TV show, which sounded suspiciously similar to the one that he and Cook had pitched. You've mentioned Ned Sherin, so I'm going to try and crowbar in my connection as early as I can. I, I did meet Ned Sherin, uh, about a year before he died, um, when I first started working in television, I was working for uh, a production company called Associated Rediffusion Guy, which was um, obviously Rediffusion, a very kind of famous name in television. I knew none yeah. of this as a 21-year-old <laughs> from the university. Uh, it was Victor Lewis Smith's production company, who himself was a, a good friend of, of Peter Cook's. I think he... I think he did a eulogy at his funeral. And then Victor has recently died as well. A divisive figure, to put it kindly. <laughs> um, a, a, yeah, a difficult guy to work for. Um, but he, yeah, he was very good at kind of throwing us all in at the at the deep end with um, with some of the productions they were doing. And Ned Sharon was involved in one of the pilots. So in that first year, I seem to remember shooting numerous pilots for stuff and uh, 
uh, Ned Sheeran was there. He could kind of barely speak at that point. His kind of, um, I think he had, he had, yeah, he'd had some kind of tracheotomy or something. It was really, mm. yeah. So yeah, Peter Cook and John Bird agreed to be in the pilot episode, but couldn't commit to a series as they'd already signed up to tour America. The show was called That Was The Week That Was. Uh, the phrase was one that Cook had coined and they took the title. Uh, a new host was found in David Frost, who was doing a satirical comedy show at the Blue Angel nightclub. Frost was at Cambridge University at the same time as Peter Cook and was seen as a bit of a hanger-on, which brought a lot of disdain from Cook's inner circle, who didn't like the way that Frost would steal material and imitate Cook's style in his own performances. Funnily enough, the only person who actually seemed to like Frost was Cook himself, who actually kind of felt sorry for him. I found this uh, thing that I want to read to you as well. Satire at the time was basically impossible due to this pamphlet called the Variety Programme's Policy Guide for Writers and Producers, which was issued in 1948 and never updated. So I thought I'd read out some of the things that were in this pamphlet. So there is an absolute ban on the following. Jokes about lavatories, effeminacy in men, and immorality of any kind. Suggestive references to honeymoon couples, chambermaids, Fig leaves, prostitution, commercial travellers, <laughs> ladies' underwear, for example, winter draws on, animal habits, for example, rabbits, and lodgers. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> That's amazing. I'd never heard that before. That's brilliant. Fig leaves. Yeah. Fig leaves. That was one where I was like, okay. That was a week that was began in 1962 and ran until the end of 1963. It was groundbreaking not only for the way it made jokes about current events, such as a profumo affair, but also its casual production style. Cameras would wander in and out of shot. The cast read some of the lines from auto cues. There are also memorized bits. We've also got open scripts. The show would often overrun. And with- some improvised bits. Was there improvised as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, that's uh, an actor who was also in a couple of carry-ons, Lance Percival, mm. uh, who would do an improvised calypso. And there's a famous story that uh, he uh, asked the audience for a subject and somebody shouted, the Queen. And he responded, <laughs> sir, the Queen is not a subject. <laughs> oh, that's class. So the shows would often overrun with editorial decisions made in real time. And TW3 also had this dark nightclub kind of atmosphere to it. Do you know the story about the third man? No, go on. So the first series, as you say, would frequently overrun because Ned Sheeran, if the show was going well, would like add a few extra items. There was no problem with that because it was the last show of the night. Uh, when they came back for the second series, the BBC had put on repeats of a quite bad American TV series based on the film The Third Man, <laughs> wow. which was just which was shit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it never had to finish up. Whatever it was, ten thirty, and David Frost and Ned Sheridan and so on were incensed at this. Like, how dare they be curtailed in this manner? They managed to get hold of the scripts, and so at the end of the first two episodes of the second series, David Frost read out a synopsis <laughs> of what was going to happen in the episode of the Third Man, which was going to be broadcast immediately following them, giving away <laughs> all the twists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Once that's they'd it. done that for two weeks, the BBC took off repeats of The Third Man and let the programme run for as long as it liked again. <laughs> that's brilliant. Just shows that irreverency, you know, <laughs> running through 
So yeah, while Cook was on Broadway, Frost was now a national institution and the king of satire. What was worse, he'd done this by using a lot of Cook's ideas. Frankie Howard had signed up from the establishment club and Frost also stole sketches that he'd contributed the odd joke to or performed in. And he also poached most of the rights from Private Eye. Cook would call Frost the bubonic plagiarist, (laughs) which is a good line. The controversial nature of the TW3 sketches upset the then Conservative government. Even though the show was supposed to run until the spring of 1964, the show was cancelled at the end of 63 because 64 was an election year and it might influence the result. Though some people believe the BBC uh, bowed to pressure from the government and took it off the air. So Frost would later go on to us, not so much a programme, more a way of life, featuring establishment club performers John Bird. John Fortune and Eleanor Bron. So this comes to my comedy connection is when I was a student, I interviewed John Fortune for my dissertation and got to sit in a pub in Chiswick and talk about comedy for two hours with him. I remember that. I remember how happy you were coming back to Huddersfield after uh, (laughs) interviewing John Fortune. Yeah, that was one of the best days of my life was that. Paul Whitehouse as well? Did you interview him? Yeah, I got Paul Whitehouse. Well, interviewed Paul Whitehouse. Yeah, I got him. And a funny letter from Rick Mail. Yeah, and a funny letter from Rick Mail, so it's quite a good <laughs> dissertation. But got to talk to John Fortune about Peter Cook and and all of that, and it was yeah great to hear the stories and about Cook's writing style and those early days of the establishment club. Not so much a program wasn't as successful as TW3, and it was cancelled after one series. Far more successful was a follow up, The Frost Report, which would pick subjects such as women, holidays, or sin to focus an episode on. It would help launch the careers of John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, and Ronnie Corbett, who were seen in the classic I Know My Place sketch all about class, which is still, yeah, still brilliant now. On the writing staff, you also have Future Pythons, Graham Chapman, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin, as well as Future Yes Minister writer Anthony Jay. When Peter Cook returned from America in 1964, the satire boom was over, and he felt as though he'd been left behind, no longer hot property. This wouldn't last for long as he'd form a double act with Dudley Moore, which propelled them both to be massive stars. But we'll get to all this when we get to Bedazzled in a future episode. I'm looking forward to Bedazzled. Again, never seen it. Oh. Uh, yeah, in for a treat. I, I, I am a fan of Bedazzled. Well, Guy and Tom, I mean, obviously you guys are both big uh, Peter Cook fans. I think, Guy, you always always have been i Mm. am kind of coming late to the party on a lot of this so (laughs) a lot of this podcast is me going to be kind of sitting back and bathing in the information that you two are uh, giving me (laughs) but uh i guess if we're calling frost report and that was the week that was etc the kind of source material you were obviously both already uh pretty aware of it and familiar with it um but you're saying can't be found very easily uh, you can see Beyond the Fringe. There's a, there's a complete recording of that. You can even get that on YouTube. Uh, and then there's a sort of bifurcation uh, because, as you already said, uh, Peter Cook establishes things like Private Eye and the Establishment Club, and he's spearheading this satire boom. David Frost nicks that, but then Peter Cook finds this partnership with Dudley Moore, and they end up doing uh, more sort of uh, class-based and more kind of surreal stuff with uh, their Pete and Dud characters, and not only but also. I guess I was more I was more familiar with not only but also, yeah. um, and well, actually, and then thereafter with Derek and Clive, my dad had a couple of the <laughs> yes. Derek and Clive um, yeah. LPs, 
Uh, so I remember listening to those, but yeah, the massive comedy fan that I am, it seems it seems almost sacrilegious to say that there's a big Peter Cook hole kind of in my in my knowledge, but there is, and you know that's been I've done my level best to try and fill that over the last couple of weeks. Certainly, um, I've do, yeah, I I watched quite a bit of um, Goodbye Again this last week, uh, which is very enjoy- as much enjoyable for the music as it was for the comedy. I thought. They've got like I, I can Tina Turner and Traffic on there. It's great, and and just Dudley Moore's jazz anyway is brilliant. Uh, but like you say, guy, we're going to get into more of that when we get to Bedazzles. Um, what what can you tell us about the making of this film? Um, yes, yeah, so it 1968. Both Cook and Maud rejected doing a third series of their sketch show, not only but also, which you just mentioned for the BBC. Bored of doing sketches and wanted to make a bigger splash. And cinema was the main driving force for Peter Cook at this point. He wanted to start his own comedy film, but his lack of success at the box office was kind of making this more and more unlikely. This was until Cook's frenemy, David Frost, devised and commissioned John Cleese and Graham Chapman to write a script for The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. The central character of Michael Rimmer was a vicious parody of Frost, who was actually oblivious to it. Frost was desperate to make the film with Cook in the lead, but raising the money for the film was a long, torturous process. While waiting for Frost to get the funding, Cook and Moore were approached by ITV, who offered them considerable amounts of money to move channels. They agreed to make three one-hour specials in a series called Goodbye Again. Though the show wasn't as successful as the BBC version, it was innovative in its own way, with the sketches not having punchlines. This is something that the Monty Python gang would be credited for creating. But Goodbye Again ran like a surreal stream of consciousness with sketches kind of going into other ones and no obvious punchlines, which is one of the kind of joys of going back to Goodbye Again after I've got the DVD, which is like the best of, and just watching those sketches sort of unfold. And some of them are like six or seven minutes long, and you're just sort of enjoying this journey that they go on. In the interim, Cook and Wiser decided to sign up for three films, The Bed Sitting Room and Monte Carlo Bus with Dudley, and the spy thriller, A Dandy in Aspic, starring Lawrence Harvey, Tom Courtney, and Mia Farrow. Audiences were left perplexed at why Cook would waste his talents to be fifth on the bill. Um, and it plays a bit in what we chatted in the previous episode, Rob, you know, with the parole officer, where we're talking about comic actors wanting to be romantic leads. I mean, Cook even said, I had the idea of becoming a romantic lead, so I did a film which had me running around with a gun in my hand, but I looked such a burke I couldn't carry on, which is... <laughs> I have to say, if Steve Coogan wanted to be a romantic lead in Parole Officer, he wasn't showing it very much when he had to do any kissing scenes with Lena Headey. But in the 70s and 80s, nothing incensed Peter Cook more than the thought of stumpy Dudley Moore uh, <laughs> becoming the romantic lead in Hollywood movies that he had always imagined would be his fate. Yeah, kissing Bo Derek in 10. Exactly, yeah. These three films were compromises, and The Bed Sitting Room and Monte Carlo or Bus both bombed at the box office. This meant that Cook's hopes of a film career were pinned to Michael Rimmer. Frost managed to secure funding from Columbia Warner, who had Cook under contract on a three-picture deal. Cleese and Chapman had written the script in Ibiza on a trip that was paid for by Frost, and now the script needed a rewrite. So Cook and director Kevin Billington joined Cleese and Chapman, and there was no room for more. He was in the West End, starring in a version of Woody Allen's play, play Against Sam, which apparently was a bit of a disaster. With Cook on writing duties, the film started to mirror Frost's career even more, who slowly began to twig. Filming took place in the autumn of 1969 and was completed by early December. 
The film was due to be edited and released the following month, but the studio had a change of management who didn't like the film and felt the subject was far too sensitive to release in the run-up to an election, so the film was shelved. Michael Rimmer was finally released in November 1970. It was a disaster. Cook's performance was slated, Cleese would say. Although he was a great sketch performer, he wasn't a very good actor. And Cook Cook himself said, I was suffering from Cook's disease, which involved that terribly glassy-eyed look. Cook's next film, Easy Does It, which had already been announced, was cancelled. And then that's sort of where it was for Peter Cook for a while. Yeah, this is the only film in which he has the singular starring role. Uh, There's only a handful of others where he can be considered co-lead. And uh, for someone who was such a mighty figure in the British comedy industry for decades, it's incredible that he never really managed to break through into movies. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. When you look at the the work that he that he goes on to do later on, like after this, he does a chat show in 1971 that's a disaster. I think it runs for something like three episodes because it he turns out he plays a butler on an American sitcom, which again is canceled yeah. after about four episodes. I've got some, um, this is a section that I ordinarily would have done before the making of the film, but I I figured that you were going to delve quite deeply into some of Peter Cook's credits. So the Britcom Comedy Connections credentials section is going to be a much briefer affair this time round because, I mean, we're going to have quite a few films like this where so many of the names just kind of speak for themselves and anyone with a kind of passing interest in British comedy is going to be familiar with a lot of their work. You've already mentioned so much of Peter Cook. A couple of bits that I wanted to add in in terms of credits of his guy. Uh, his first uh, appearance in a film was 1958's Bachelor of Hearts as a completist. Have you seen that? I've not. No. I don't know anything wow. about that. Obviously, we've, we've mentioned the uh, the satire boom programs and the partnership with Dudley Moore, Monte Carlo or Bust and Bedazzled. Uh, obviously, Derek and Clive uh, came after that, which is kind of required listening for any British comedy fans. I'm sure we, we'll talk a lot more about that when we get to Bedazzles. Uh, mm. In the late 70s, Cook and Moore did a version of The Hound of the Baskervilles as Holmes and Watson. I have uh, seen that. And? I didn't think it was great, but it's kind of, Cooks plays the kind of an idiotic Sherlock Holmes from what I can remember. And it's it's what Dr. Watson's Dudley, Dudley is Dr. Watson, who's the kind of brains behind it. But it's got a lot of British comedies. I think Terry Thomas is in it and all those sort of people kind of crop up for a scene and yeah, there's a running joke in the Harry Thompson autobiography of Peter Cook about all these films uh, where they don't have a lot of faith in the script, so they stack the cast uh, with all of these British comedy legends, uh, and it's usually a terrible warning that the film you're about to watch is going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, bear that in mind for future editions of this mm, podcast. Yeah, that does, doesn't bode well, does it? <laughs> Although, um, having said, sorry to interrupt, Rob, having said yeah. that, Lesbian Vampire Killers had none of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom, I'm, I'm going to assume you haven't seen Lesbian Vampire Killers, and I would advise... I have not. I would no. strongly advise you against ever bothering. Well, maybe we'll do, we'll do a swap one day. I'll watch <laughs> Lesbian Vampire Killers, and you can watch Patton. Yeah, deal. okay, deal. <laughs> Obviously, the Secret Policeman's Ball of 1979 is a huge comedy touchstone. Uh, uh, Cook's satire film appearances didn't end with Michael Rimmer. There's Whoops Apocalypse from 1980, which we're going to add to our list, Guy. Uh, mm. David Rennick, one of the writers on that, and I'd like an excuse to talk about One Foot in the Grave, I think. Um, he had a, a kind of varied Hollywood career in the in the 80s. Princess Bride is obviously really fondly remembered by 
everyone. Uh, Supergirl by Crazy People and uh, Great Balls of Fire by Pedophile Apologists, I guess. Um and he did an early John Candy vehicle as well called Find the Lady, which is a, a film I'm not uh, familiar no, with. No, I don't know that one. But he was always returning to the UK to make TV and film, notably, obviously, Blackadder, in which he plays Richard III in Series 1. Um, I wanted to make a mention of him as Roger Melly, the man on the telly for Viz. Um, a series called Gone to Siege with Rufus Sewell, Jim Broadbent, and Alison Stedman. This is in the early 90s now. Wow. He is in one episode of One Foot in the Grave, which is... He is. Uh, He's uh, really good I, in that. One I have seen but can't remember, bizarrely. It's the it's the one on holiday, One Foot in the Algarve, is it? When they go oh, he's on holiday one, to Portugal, and he's like a journalist who's following them, I think. Okay, there we go. Um, one of the last things he did before he died was um, Right Said Fred's video for Stick It Out, which was the 1993 uh, Comet Relief single, uh, and he passed away in 1995. I, I've seen that video quite a lot recently because it's on the old Top of the Pops that are on BBC Four at the moment. Yeah, go. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, oh, he's in Comic Strips Presents as well, Mr. Jolly Lives Next Door with Rip Mail and Ed Edmondson. That's a good yeah. one. And have you guys seen him on Clive Anderson? I've seen, yeah, he does. That. I've seen bits of it, or maybe on one of the documentaries. I saw this go out. Uh, so this would have been like 94, 95, I think. Uh, so very close to the end of his life. And Clive Anderson had this late night Channel 4 chat show, Clive Anderson Talks Back, which was the usual parade of people with things to plug. Uh, and Clive Anderson's interviewing technique, which would generally consist of throwing one-liners at them. Um, but Peter Cook wanted to come on it. Uh, and so <laughs> I had no, no one had any idea this was happening. Uh, he simply introduced the first guest, and it was very common which one the first one was what the first character was now, but he came on as maybe it was the bewildered judge. And it was clear very soon that this was Peter Cook uh, and not, in fact, the judge that we'd been hearing about. But this very, very funny interview took place. And then there was some other sketch or other bit of business. And then the second guest came on, who was a motivational speaker, also played by Peter Cook. And every guest on that episode of Clive Anderson Talks Back was Peter Cook in a different guise. Amazing. And to prepare the questions, uh, he had essentially been uh, assigned a different researcher for each of these characters and, and improvised with them <laughs> to create all the details. <laughs> and then those notes have been taken back to Clive Anderson and his writers and they'd figured out what questions to ask. But then it was all just improvised. And I'm sure, I'm sure cut down in the edit. Uh, but that was a, an, uh, a completely surprise appearance for mm -hmm. one night on Channel 4 of just miraculous Peter Cook invention. Amazing. I mean, that sounds like a kind of a one episode version of, and I'm sure Richard Ayoade and Matthew, and Matthew Holness would have seen this before making Man to Man with Dean Lerner. But that's, I mean, that's what you've described sounds, sounds <laughs> like that. Um, I, I remember Clive Anderson talks back for the Bee Gees, obviously, the <laughs> famous You're the Tosser, mate, walking out. And, um, <laughs> and Steve Coogan has Alan Partridge on that as well. Yeah, I was going to say that there's another really good Peter Cook one from, I think, 93 for the radio. He did Why Bother with Chris Morris, which is, it's just him being interviewed by Chris Morris. He's playing the Arthur Street Griebling character that he used to play for, for years. And it's just, I think there's just the, those two improvised these uh, short episodes. But if you can catch those, they're some of the funniest stuff he did, I think. I'm going to move on next to uh, Denham Elliott, who plays Peter Ness, most famous to people our age for films like Trading Places, A Room with a View, Indiana Jones, etc. Uh, but from a British comedy point of view, I wanted to just draw attention to a few credits. He's in a couple of episodes of Hancock early in his career. Um, 
a film called Nothing But The Best in 1964 with Millicent Martin, who um, obviously from that was the week that was. Um, uh, a film called You Must Be Joking with Lionel Jeffries and Bernard Cribbins. I mentioned that because a few of the cast of this were in that film as well. Uh, a spoof film called The Spy With The Cold Nose. Uh, here we go around the Mulberry Bush. The Percy films, which sounds truly awful just from the tiny little bit of, uh, they sound like kind of, uh, late 60s sex comedies. Uh, he, he's also in The Hand of the Baskervilles, the Cook and Moore version. He's in the film of Rising, da- of Rising Damp, which is on our list, uh, Killing Dads, and finally, uh, not a comedy, but I wanted to draw both your attention to, there's a late 80s TV version of The Bourne Identity, which he, he doesn't play Jason Bourne, but he is, he is in wow. that. I, I, yeah. Not, not heard of that know, before. Yeah, I didn't know such a thing existed. I thought adaptations began with with uh, Matt Damon, but apparently not. Uh, Ronald Fraser, who plays uh, Tom Hutchinson. Uh, again, keeping it just a comedy because he's got a, a massive list of credits. Uh, his first role in comedy was 1958's Bobby Kins. He was in two Norman Wisdom films. There was A Crooked Man from 1960 and Girl on the Boat from 62. He's in The Punch and Judy Man, which is on our list uh, Sinful Davy, which is a John Huston action comedy, which sounds intriguing. It's got John Hurt in it. Bed, bed Sitting Room, also in our list. Uh, his own sitcom, Misfit, which I mentioned in the Man About the House episode because both Patrick Newell and Brian Murphy were in that. The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, which is a 70s British portmanteau comedy with Bruce Forsyth and Bernard Breslau and Roy Hurd's and it sounds deliciously shite. I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I think I re- we have to put it on the list, Rob, because it sounds <laughs> awful, but I want to see it. I want to see it. I mean, what, as, uh, as as I'll touch upon, um, Graham Chapman and John Cleese wrote one of the sections for that. So, I mean, it can't be terrible. Well, who knows? John, John Cleese has done his fair share of terrible stuff, hasn't he? <laughs> um, more later. More later. Than- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. He's uh, uh, in one episode of Dick Emery and he's in The Trail of the Pink Panther. Is that a poor one, Tom? Oh, very poor. Yes. But uh, the most the most interesting credit, I think, for Ronald Fraser right at the end of his career slash life is TFI Friday. He was on five episodes of TFI Friday playing a character called the Lord of Love, which I'm really, really surprised I don't remember because I used to religiously watch TFI Friday. Um, Arthur Lowe, what needs to be said uh, about Arthur Lowe, I'll just run through some quickly. Uh, an early appearance in Kind Hearts and Coronets, which I didn't I didn't know he was in that, probably because I haven't seen Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is oh, horrible. Rob, Rob, my God. Uh, well, you, again, you're in, for a, you're in for a treat. It's hugely influential. And, and uh, you also have Dennis Price in this film, uh, who's the star of Kind Hearts and Coronets. I think Arthur Lowe might be uh, the the guy who comes up to Dennis Price at the end of the film. And I don't want to say any more than that because I don't want to spoil it because it has got a delicious ending. Uh, but I think that might be Arthur Lowe. And if it isn't, I'm prepared to look foolish. Continuing with Arthur Lowe in the 50s, he was in The Reluctant Bride and The Green Man, which is with George Cole and Terry Thomas. Uh, in the 60s, a film called Follow That Horse with David Tomlinson from uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, British classic, This Sporting Life. I think that's a, uh, a, a new wave classic, isn't it? The, that's, uh, is that one of your one of your favourites, Guy? I seem to remember. Yeah, or yeah, I, enjoyed yeah. the spot. No, no, it's just, I mean, I love that period of, of film anyway. But yeah, that's definitely up there. Something I didn't know about his career: Coronation Street, and oh, not, yeah. not just for a bit. One hundred and ninety-seven episodes of Coronation Street, which I had no idea about. 
Uh, he's also in You Must Be Joking, which we've already talked about, and The Bed Sitting Room, which we've already talked about. Uh, most prolific in the 1970s, obviously Dad's Army, which ran from 68 to 77, including the film in 71 on our list, as is the remake, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I've seen. Uh. <laughs> Here, Arthur Lowe is in... Uh, Doctor at Large, uh, which of course came up in Man, uh, Man About the House episode because Richard O'Sullivan's in it. Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall with Jim Dale and Bill Maynard. Uh, Theatre of Blood, a personal favourite of mine. Uh, no Sex, Please, We're British, which is on our list. Man About the House. Now, is he the first actor guy to appear in uh, two films that we've profiled so far? I think he might be. I think he is, yeah. I don't think there's anyone else who's made two Britcom Goes appearances. Uh, but what what Arthur Lowe will always mean to me, perhaps probably more than Captain Mannering, is what do you think I'm going to say? The Mr. Men. Mr. Men, yeah. On cassettes, both video and audio. Um, and that, that's something I've been able to dig out and play with my uh, eldest son who went through a big Mr. Man phase about a, a year ago and... Uh, Harold Pinter uh, is the last actor in this film that I'm going to mention, um, simply because if if we were to talk about his, obviously his career as a playwright, we'd be here all night. But some kind of acting credits I want to mention. Obviously, he, he's in a lot of kind of like televised plays, like some of his own as well, uh, including uh, Small Parts in the Caretaker in 1963 and Sleuth in 2007, obviously, uh, film roles like Mansfield Park and The Tailor of Panama are worth mentions. His wife and director Kevin Billington's wife were sisters, which I'm guessing is why he's in the film. Uh, Antonia Fraser and Rachel Billington, yeah, were were sisters. Our sisters, I think they're both still alive. Kevin Billington, um, who has a, a, a rather kind of short uh, entry on IMDb. He started in documentaries because because there's not much uh, comedy to his name apart from this. I'm going to just mention a, a few credits of his. Um, he started off working with Alan Wicker. Uh, did an Alan Wicker episode called Down Mexico Way and did a few documentaries in Latin America. In fact, won a BAFTA for a film called The Matador. Um, he did a film called Interlude, which uh, John Cleese is in, and, and Donald Sutherland is also in the cast of that. Uh, after Michael Rimmer, he made Light at the Edge of the World with Kurt Douglas and Yul Brynner. He directed a film called Voices, which is a horror with David Hemmings when he was at the kind of height of his giallo uh, Dario Argento films. Uh, and in 1979, widely considered uh, one of the BBC's 70s best uh, Shakespeare adaptations, his adaptation of Henry VIII, which I've not seen, but it's it's supposed to be one of the best. Uh, Michael Rimmer was his only writing credit, so I think he kind of, I don't know, did he get on for for rewrites after he was attached as as director? Because just Cleese and Chapman as the as the original writers, right? I was looking at this, and it, weirdly, he seems to have a a uh, an award from the Writers Guild for writing the script for a documentary, but that documentary isn't included in his list of credits on IMDb. So make of that what you will. It's weird having having read his obituary and his IMDb uh, entry. How the, there's a lot of stuff in the obituary that isn't in the IMDb. <laughs> And finally, uh, executive producer David Frost, the king of the satire boom, as uh, guys obviously uh, told us a lot about him. I've wanted to highlight some of the stuff he did in the 70s in America. 
he did a lot of sports commentary, boxing commentary, particularly for for HBO in America, which I find, I'd love to listen to some of his working in sports television. I'd like to li- listen to some of his boxing commentary. I'd be interested in that. Um, and then obviously, very famously, his interviews in America, particularly Richard Nixon, um, in which he's brilliantly played by Michael Sheen in what I think is one of Ron Howard's best films, if not his best. I'm a big fan of Frost Nixon. Me too. Great film. Uh, so before we get into the film, Tom has very kindly written a bit of political context for us going into the making of The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer. So uh, please take it away, Tom. Shall I tell you a bit about the political context of the film? I think one of the reasons why I still encourage people to watch it is it does feel very fresh. You know, a lot of the stuff about spin might make you think of Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson. A lot of stuff about polling might make you think about things like Cambridge Analytica. Uh, so it's very, very prescient in many ways. But I think you get more out of it, more out of it, if you understand a bit more about the uh, the political landscape in Britain at the time. Uh, so um, polling is interesting because uh, this was kind of the early days of polling. There was a by-election in the mid-60s, which was quite controversial because it was thought that people might have been altered in their voting intentions by reading the results of the poll because uh, it was all still very new. Uh, but this is um, Harold Wilson's government. Uh, so he became prime minister in 1964, defeating Alec Douglas Home at the general election, and only had a small majority, but he called a snap election only 80 months later, and increased his majority to nearly 100 seats. Uh, And this was that hugely progressive Labour government that you might have heard of, passing legislation to reform social security and civil liberties and workers' rights, and it's Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary abolishing theatre censorship, capital punishment, decriminalising homosexuality, reforming abortion laws, all this stuff happening in in this sort of spate of legislation in the mid-60s. But it's also a time of economic turmoil, uh, with a pound under pressure, uh, Wilson forcing to devalue uh, and rising unemployment. Uh, So as the Tories keep gaining seats in by-elections, Wilson has to make a decision. He could have hung on until 1971, but uh, two things swayed him. Firstly, there was a bit of an uptick in the polls. Uh, And so, in fact, the election in 1970 was one that Labour was widely expected to win. Also... Uh, there was the fact that coming in uh, February 1971 was decimalization, which was thought to be unpopular. And so he wanted to try and sneak in before decimalization was rolled out. Everyone knew it was coming. It had been planned for ages, but it would be form- it would formally start in February 1971. Uh, so if Michael Rimmer had been released as planned in late 69, early 70, showing the incumbent Labour Party, defeated by the Conservatives, would have seemed an enormous act of satirical fortune-telling. As it was, it came out something like nine months after the election, and it looked as if it was merely sort of placidly echoing events rather than foretelling them. Um, But there are figures that would have meant more to an audience in 1970 than maybe mean to us. Some of them are fairly obvious. Uh, So uh, the... uh, um, patrician conservative leader in opposition is supposed to be Edward Heath. Uh, the Yorkshire-sounding pipe-smoking Labour Prime Minister is supposed to be Harold Wilson, although it's worth pointing out that in private, Harold Wilson smoked cigarettes. Ah. Uh, the pipe-smoking was something he only did for the cameras. <laughs> and maybe most obviously, but also most sort of darkly, the character Eric Bentley is very clearly based on Enoch Powell, 
So a little bit about Enoch Powell. He was an MP for 20 or 30 years. He was a cabinet minister for Harold Macmillan and Outlookers Home. And he gave this famous Rivers of Blood speech in Birmingham in April 1968, and basically saying that if immigration from Commonwealth countries to the UK continued, then our country would be enmeshed in race riots such as those in America, if not worse. It was widely condemned, and nobody sacked him, but he retained his Wolverhampton seat with a huge majority at the 1970 election, and polls in the 1970s showed him to be among the most popular politicians in the country. He turned on the Conservatives when Edward Heath took Britain into Europe and then became an MP for the Ulster Unionists in 1974, and he remained so until the 80s when he finally lost his seat to the SDLP. Uh, and then he kind of re retired from public life. But he was still uh, around and giving sound bites, uh, and basically uh, and, until only a, a couple of years before his death. He's, he's getting a scary amount of social media traction over the last few years as well. And, you know, obviously the parallels to be drawn between him and Farage, I guess. Yes, as well. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think Farage maybe even is on record as saying how much he admired him. Well, he, but Enoch Powell, again, we mentioned in our Man About the House episode, didn't we? Because um, the George Roper character is is a self-confessed fan of Enoch Powell and the, the whole point in that character is, you know, he, he he's an idiot for his his views on that, although that, that never very obviously came across did it, when we were, when we were actually watching the film. It no. could sometimes seem like they were endorsing George Roper's beliefs sometimes i saw uh, an interview on um twitter the other day someone shared jonathan miller and enoch powell going at it on a on a talk show in the early 70s and jonathan miller tearing him apart basically his argument was good to watch uh thanks for that tom that's uh really and it, like you say it is really helpful to have some of that context going into seeing that film uh, seeing this film um because like you say it predicted the future although upon its release it didn't, and that's probably why it didn't fare as well as it could have done had it been released when it was initially meant to be. It was initially meant to be released for February 1970, I believe, right? Something and like that, yeah. And then yeah. not until November. It was going to be a quick turnaround. You know, so they shot it, what, autumn 69, edited it December, come out January, February 1970, and then it was going to be out there to the world then. So I, I think mean, it's... Sorry, I just, I just wanted to say, it, it's interesting that we had this situation earlier on with that was a week that was being kind of cancelled in the run-up to an election, and now we have this film, it's that foreboding that goes along. I mean, was it standard practice at this time was an election's coming up, we can't have anything that's going to show any sort of interference or of any any kind? Yeah, I think in general, uh, broadcasters and and the media were much jumpier uh, than they are now. Uh, now it's a bit more of a free-for-all, for, for, yeah. for good or for ill. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks for that, Tom. I think we should uh, we should get into the, because there is lots to get into in this film, guys. So uh, you've uh, very handily uh, gone through it with a fine-tooth comb. Let's, uh, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it after this. Uh, we're just doing a survey of people's religious attitudes and habits and would very much value your opinion. Oh, yes, certainly. Um, well, what religion are you? I'm a Buddhist. Oh, a Buddhist? Yes. Oh, I see. Uh, a practicing Buddhist? Yes. Ah, how long have you been a Buddhist? All my life. Excuse, excuse me, sir. Excuse me. Um, uh, we're doing a survey of religious... I'm um, a Buddhist. We... You're a Buddhist? There's a lot of us in on Eton, you know. Excuse me, madam. Uh, what, what religion are you? What... 
I'm Church of England. Have you have you always been C of E? Oh no. Only since I married. And before that you were a, a Buddhist. Buddhist. We open with a John Barry style swinging 60s score. Two men enter a shabby looking waiting room. One of them is Peter Cook as Michael Rimmer holding a stopwatch and a clipboard. The man ahead of Rimmer tells the receptionist he wants to see the managing director. Buffery is his name. She tosses her magazine down with annoyance and calls the managing director. Mr. Ferret, uh, cream please, he says. <laughs> She's a great start. And then she explains that Buffery is here to see him and Ferret tells her to send him up. She spots Rimmer and says a questioning, yes. Rimmer just smiles and says, yes, following Buffery up the stairs. Clicking his stopwatch as he goes. I do like the, the clicking of the stopwatch in these early scenes. Do you know about these time and motion studies? I've heard of them before, but it definitely feels like something. I mean, I remember it's an I'm All Right, Jack. Yeah. John LeMessieux is, is the time and motion man and all the guys at the factory are all <laughs> yes. kind of, oh, bloody time and motion man's yeah. here. And this was, it was all sort of anti-union stuff, which is why it's in I'm All Right, Jack. And you can see this this big thread of of union satire, which keeps going right through into Not The Nine O'Clock News. It's in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it's in loads of Monty Python stuff. Uh, and that's sort of what is the background to this. You know, if you were management, you, you would bring in these sort of consultants who would be able to, to show the unions on paper uh, why what they were asking for was unreasonable. Ah, uh, I get you. So that, yeah. Because obviously those were big union things. Where yeah. I'm all right, Jack, like you said. So definitely stands to reason. And I guess that's why everyone has this mistrust of Rimmer first off, don't they? When you just see him with his his stopwatch, it's yeah. just accepted as part of the the furniture. I like that he's going up the stairs as the title of the film comes on our screen as well. The rise and rise, and he's just climbing more stairs and more stairs and more stairs. Lovely, yeah. And at the risk of jumping ahead, a frequent objection to the script of this film is that it's very, very linear. There aren't really any subplots. There aren't really very many even surprises once you realise the key comedy mechanism of the film. But again, like like uh, several things, not least of which is Peter Cook's own performance, what in almost any other film would be a weakness here, I think, is a strength. Because it's this, this inexorable, as the title says, rise and rise, uh, which is where a lot of the satire is located. It is relentless, isn't it? Okay, well, having having said that, I was a little bit worried in the in the first kind of five to ten minutes that oh, hang on, is is this not what I thought it was? A few of those opening kind of bits with Arthur Lowe seem a little bit out of place, but it's all kind of required setup for the knocking down of of this character. I think you can tell that there are different comedy sensibilities at work. And I think where this film feels uncertain, uh, and I think the most obvious example is right at the end, but we might we might come on to that. But some of the stuff with the secretary feels a bit kind of schoolboy to me. Uh, and the very sophisticated satire about the way in which powerful people communicate with the masses, I think, uh, feels like it comes from a different writer. And given that there was this big rewrite and there are four credited writers, uh, as well as who knows how many other people on set throwing in their own little bits of business, it's not very surprising no definitely uh, and now we're in ferret's office and we have these like leering shots of the secretary tanya of her bum where she's kind of trying to get something and we can see her knickers peeking out from under a miniskirt it's not a feminist film i think that's that that, that could be said it's, it's definitely a film i mean it's not a terribly uh pro-man film because it's full of gray men in ill-fitting suits who are either 
dull and unambitious or just completely evil. There's maybe one solitary exception to that rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but there really aren't any female characters. Uh, there's, there's, again, we'll, we'll probably come on to her, but there's there's a flicker of something in the, the show jumping champion that Rimmer picks for his wife. Yeah. Uh, but even the phrase picks for his wife should tell you <laughs> this is not a feminist film. Yeah. I don't think it looks on anyone favorably though, does it? You know, like like you said, it's it's sort of damning of humanity of <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. it is a world of men. Uh, it yeah. is a world in which men make decisions and men do things. Uh, and women are, if they're lucky, uh, able to tempt a passing pollster uh, into the parlor uh, for a little bit of afternoon delight. Uh, and, and if they're unlucky, are simply the uh, object of, uh, of lust of other men. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's it. So, yeah, we see uh, Nick is peeking out from under a miniskirt. Ferret, played by Arthur Lowe, is having a good old perv right here. And Buffery startles Ferret, who quickly grabs a piece of paper. He's trying to make it like he's doing something, like he's hard at work. And Buffery punches him and leaves just before he goes, just popped in to cancel our contract. And then that's it. And then Ferret asks Rimmer if he's all right. And he goes, Rimmer, sir, coordination. Ah, yes, yes, sir. Keep, keep it up. Ferret gets up and grabs a piece of his now broken chair. Then he looks baffled. Coordination. Rimmer goes into the chief accountant's office. Which I think it's Federman, he's called, who's got a book he's going. So he's, he's on the phone and he's taking calls. And on the blackboard is all these sort of names of horses that uh, have got different odds with them. He then goes to the toilet and times John Cleese having a piss. And then a guy called Crodder comes out of the cubicle and Rimmer gets his name wrong. Ah, oh, Mr. Trotter. Which I thought... Crowder comes out the toilet and complains to Tanya, the uh, secretary, and she says that she thinks that Rimmer is working for Mr. Fairburn. We have Mr. Waring and Mr. Fromage, one of them played by Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame. Go to see Ferret to complain that the firm took their advertising contract six months ago, and yesterday was the first time they'd heard from them. They'd been sent slogans for advertising their dog food. Only trouble is, we don't make dog food, Mr. Ferret. <laughs> They make humbugs. And the, the line was, woof, makes doggies bounce with health. Yes. Rimmer tells them that Ferret will have a new slogan for them by next week. And then Ferret asks Tanya to make a note of it, and she looks back at him perplexed. And she's never had to make a note for anyone before. She's, she's yeah. just, just <laughs> been there to have her knickers looked at. That's the, been the entirety of her job description up until this point. Just to be eye candy for, for Ferret. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then Rimmer walks past a fire extinguisher that says don't use after 1958. That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Did you spot one of one of the files that Ferret is going through uh, has got a swastika on yes. it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I, so, so the, the note I made at that point was they're really layering it on thick about this guy, aren't they? <laughs> First of all, he's staring at some pants, and now he's grasping for a swastika. <laughs> I loved the, the fact that he's grasping through. A, I mean, to me, that shot worked. I mean, the first shot, I think, doesn't. We'll, we'll get on. To, I guess we come on to it in a bit. But the first and a lot shot, of these, by the way, a lot of these are interior sets. Uh, they, they, I think, they took over something like a, a Methodist hall or something like that, and had a set designer called Carmen Dillon. Uh, so most of what you're seeing, especially in those early scenes, that bathroom example, that's all a set. That wasn't a location ah. they found. That was created for the film, and I think it looks fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, you can still see today these like publishers down uh, places like Good Street and uh, and Gower Street in London, where uh, an old Victorian terraced house has been taken over and is now being used as offices. And it was happening in the sixties. Looks perfect. But yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say that you know that the first shot is quite leery, but I think this shot of him trying to grab the files through a 
thighs does work and doesn't feel yeah. as sort of pervy because it's more about him being the perv that he yes. is. Yeah, and, and not I making think, us the pervs. Yeah, exactly. And I think that works better. Um, they have to set him up like this for all the horrible, horrible shit that's going to happen to him for the rest of the film. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, you know, if he'd have, if he was just kind of set up as a kind of hapless but without this kind of nasty side to him, then it would be it would be too much to bear. I think. <laughs> yeah, yes. it would be cruel. Whereas. You kind of like seeing, because he's such an ass that he kind of likes seeing this descent that he goes to, but we will get to that. Uh, Rimmer then enters the office of Puma, who is practicing his ballroom dancing. That's John Cleese. And he even has the number on his back. And it's like, Tango, my wife and I have been selected for the Southeast. And then Rimmer clicks his stopwatch again. Love the timing of that. And then Puma says, I practice on my coffee break. Not that I have the coffee. And then we're now back in Ferret's office as he tries searching for a book on his shelf between the thighs of his secretary. Yeah. And I, I did write about the swastika yes. that was there, which I just loved that. I was like, there's a bloody swastika on that file. <laughs> <laughs> Ferret turns around and looks embarrassed as he can see that Rimmer is watching him. Rimmer then tells him that he's going to take over the office next door. So the water's been cut off because they haven't paid the bill. Ferret then tells Tanya that he'll see her in the pub later. Everyone leaves as the electricity is cut off and Ferret sprays himself in the face with a can of Coke. Love that old uh, vending machine that they had. That is, that is a, a lovely uh, piece of propage there, that, the, uh, the vending machine. I'd love one of those. Opening a can of Coke like a uh, tin of beans. Love it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so he opens up a can of Coke into his face and then bangs in the dark. He bangs his face on the coat hanger. Rimmer appears with a torch and Ferret tells him he's conducting, I'm conducting an experiment. Office efficiency in total darkness. <laughs> uh, but asks him not to tell Mr. Fairburn. You know, he's out of touch with modern methods. Ferret goes home to find Mrs. Ferret waiting on his doorstep in a nightie. He's pissed and she isn't happy. He tells her that he was working late and she has a go at him for coming home smelling of sex and soap. He tries to make her believe that it's not a love bite that's on his neck. It's where he banged himself on the coat hanger. It's a new day and the office is getting a full refurb. There's also a sign that's been added to the list of businesses in the building, Fairburn Poles. Uh, I love the uh, the Rimmer logos on all the uh, workmen's overalls, which is very uh, sinister, <laughs> quite futuristic yeah. in, a, in a, almost a 2001 <laughs> type way. And you can imagine the version of this film after uh, some studio has given notes uh, when it's remade, in which we have to know who this guy is and where he comes from. We have to see him making this plow to see why he wants to do this. The answer to all those questions is no, we don't. <laughs> uh, and again, it's this it's this weird way in which the 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 vacuity of Peter Cook's performance exactly mirrors how little information we have about him and how he has no interiority as a character at all, but he is playing this sort of iconic villain, mm. uh, this Richard III character without the soliloquies. Uh, and it's the very fact that we know nothing about him, which means that we can see in him whatever we want. And it makes perfect sense, therefore, that he can simply turn up in his mid-30s Clearly, yeah. uh, at, at this at the, this uh, advertising agency, turn it into a polling company, uh, and then become prime minister. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like he's beamed down, isn't it, from yes. another planet? Yes. One of the things that reading Harry Thompson's book again, I was leafing through it, and the sort of critiques of the film that come out and that he makes about you know the the lack of good acting, and should have brought Dudley Moore in to be a sympathetic character, and 
yeah, I'm, I don't really buy it. I kind of, I prefer this version of the film rather than someone trying to stop evil Michael Rimmer getting what he wants. <laughs> yes. It doesn't work in that world, does it? A, a sympathetic Dudley Moore character would feel so even more out of place than the early Arthur Lowe slapstick. Yeah. Rimmer uh, is in his sharp suit and the once boiled receptionist now has a headset on. She looks really happy. Tanya is wearing more appropriate office wear and Rimmer tells her that she'll be working in his office this morning. In his office, Rimmer asks Tanya if there's any sign of ferret yet. There isn't. And this is when we see ferret rush in. You're late, Mr. Ferret, says the receptionist. He blames the traffic just like last week. And he tries to sneak in past Rimmer but there's a dodgy looking hole that's been made in yeah. the wall. You can see echoes of this in uh, another favourite sitcom uh, with a, a weirdly similar title, and uh, that's The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. Oh, yeah, yes. we talked about this recently, didn't we, on the Staggered episode. Yeah. He also um, uh, comes into work every single day with a different bizarre excuse <laughs> about why he is exactly the same number of minutes late as he was yesterday and the day before that. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah another brilliant one i've not yeah i've not seen that in a long time but it holds up so there's this dodgy hole in the wall that looks like it's sort of crumbling and just been held up with planks of wood in between um this is so rimmer can keep an eye on him not that ferret realizes he picks up a newspaper and then startled when he hears his name and he grabs a piece of paperwork uh he also kind of Tries to come in, doesn't he, with his briefcase hiding his face past Rimmer's office. <laughs> and then we cut to a country estate where Rimmer approaches Fairburn. It's Dennis Price, who we mentioned earlier, who is fishing and tells him he's got the efficiency report he commissioned. Fairburn has no idea who he is. This doesn't bother Rimmer, who just carries on. Turns out his business is running an annual deficit of £75,000, which I think in today's money is about a million quid maybe a little bit over fairburn tells um rimmer to fire ferret and then back in his office ferret is watching the cricket and, he, and he's in a cream bun that's what a lovely combination that is cricket cricket and cream buns yes please and it also um the dennis price character saying of his wife i'm sure she'll linger on for quite a while yet yeah, it's another <laughs> another example of this not being a feminist film um, yeah, and then Rimmer and Fairburn enter the office. He tries to get rid of the buns, and then he goes, oh, please sit down, Mr. Cream Bun. I mean, Mr. Fairburn. <laughs> Fairburn fires him, and he just goes, well, better be off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's something we would all like to say if we, uh, if we got married, <laughs> I think. Fairburn tells him that he owes him a lot of money and he'll keep working at the firm in a menial capacity for a pittance until such a time he's decided that he has worked off his debt. Otherwise, it's prison. Rimmer apologises for all the unpleasantness and tells Ferret to take the afternoon off. <clears throat> Rimmer's office has now grown sizably and wearing and fromage are back. He tells them that no one likes their humbugs, but they can make a virtue out of these defects. And then this is when we have... The advert for Scorpio humbugs. This, this is so brilliant. So, but anyway, this is uh, this is the first point I laugh out loud, and you know, for quite some time that I've probably missed quite a lot of that, um, a lot of that advert the first time round. I'd have to go and watch it again, but it is it's absolute genius. Um, yeah, so we have this we have this advert um, for Scorpio humbugs, where a naked woman rises around on a bed before grabbing a tube of Scorpio and removing the lid with her mouth before licking the mint sensually. 
Very good fromage looks shot to their car. <laughs> Ferret appears in the office with the coffee. It was tea we asked for. Oh, well, I think there must be some tea in it, which is another of those great Arthur Law lines. Rimmer has a meeting with his staff and tells them he wants to investigate the British sexual habits. Uh, everyone but Crodder looks game. He thinks it's sailing a bit too close to the wind. Rimmer says it's the best way of getting to the front pages. So now we have um, Crodder knocking on the door of a suburban house where this housewife answers it. He tells her he's investigating sexual habits. She excitedly asks him in to the house. This is definitely a theme from the films that we've been watching this time, Rob, of housewives at home gagging yeah. for it. Yeah, definitely. That Yeah, it's a recurring thing. Which is actually one of the... I don't know if you got to the, the sketch on Goodbye Again where it's Cook and Mara's these birds watching this... Like no, they're dressed as birds sat in a tree and there's a sub- sort of suburban house got going along and they're kind of commenting on what the humans do. And then one of them is Rodney Bewes from uh, The Likely Lads, who's a milkman who comes around and has a bit of the old as your father with the <laughs> with the woman I mean, of the house. It's funny that, yeah, that, that bit reminded you of a sketch um, from Goodbye Again because uh, – in this kind of montage of polling, the bit with the scuba diver reminded me, I mean, that's, that's so Python that that yeah. could be a standalone Python sketch. Couldn't it? That? I wrote that. I wrote, this is very Python-esque is the, the yeah. scuba diver one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then we have a man who said the last time he got any sex was 1953. It was a coronation that got her going. <laughs> <laughs> now we have a shot of a dominatrix who says that she hopes it's a stepping stone to show, to show business. <laughs> Brilliant line. Yeah great was that opens up a wardrobe to reveal a middle-aged man upside down wearing stockings and suspenders and this is all sort of playing into things like uh the profumo affair and there was there was photos uh doing the rounds in the late 60s of these sort of masked orgies and there were rumors that one of the unidentified men in one of these pictures was an mp and that's sort of what's being played around with here right i was going to ask if it was to do with christine keeler yeah absolutely and, yeah, yeah yeah i wondered about that and that was 63, but it was still one of those you know, evergreen <laughs> uh, comedy touchstones for uh, people like uh, Peter Cook and John Cleese. Yeah, so the office has grown even more now. So we have a typing pool of secretaries and computers on the walls. Ferret has breakfast with his wife, and she asks if he's been fired, and he tries to laugh it off. And she wants to know why the car's for sale. And he says, oh, it's a mistake by Rimmer. It should read Force Ale, a new beer we're advertising. I, I thought the time was was a bit of a dud joke, but when they do the callback to it, it's, it is very funny. The, the capper of that, of that scene, I think, is great, where she says, I've never heard of it. He says, well, you may never. It's very hush-hush. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, we're now on the set of the Stephen Hen shows, played by Harold Pinter. On the show, uh, Rimmer and Peter Niss which is Denham Elliott, who's from rival polling firm IOP. Hench asks Rimmer if this kind of smut was only done as a publicity stunt. Rimmer tells him it's important to research to find out how people feel. Hench takes his question into the studio audience. The first person he speaks to is a man who's with a woman who's not his wife and purposefully embarrasses them. <laughs> and did you clock the name of the show? N- no, no what's the name of the show? Stephen Hench is talking to you. Uh, now take the take the initials. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I missed that. I'm so glad you brought that one to our attention. That's brilliant. Well, the, and the question is as well: Is Doncaster the swapping capital of the UK? <laughs> 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 
a little uh, as a West Yorkshireman guy, that's a nice uh, a nice dig at South Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that one specifically. I have to say. <laughs> and, and, and the line, "I've got the feeling." Congratulations, which uh, <laughs> very, really made me laugh. Brilliant. So now we're in what looks like a lecture theatre. Rimmer is briefing his staff to pose as regular members of the public uh, to go in a shopping precinct. Rimmer goes to show the image of the man conducting the poll. And we have a classic picture of a naked woman in a slideshow gag, <laughs> which causes Crodder to pass out. It's another gaff by Ferret, who's in the in the projection room, controlling it all. Eventually, we have a, a picture of the pollster comes up, and it's Ronnie Carbert. And uh, Kevin Billington's very keen to uh, make this a film that like, couldn't have been made any earlier. You know, it, it, he wants Rimmer's world to be a world of modernity, contrasting with what the offices look like when he first moves in. And one of the things about that was filming at a shopping precinct, because shopping precincts were new. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, this was uh, very definitely saying, this is, this is a film of now, this is a film of today. Uh, you know, today you can't walk into any major thoroughfare not to get shopping precinct but they, they were a new thing in 1969 we now transition to ronnie carbert stood on a high street where he sees a coach pull up and the employees of fairbank are getting off puma john cleese is separating them into groups he and his team awkwardly stroll on the high street looking very uninconspicuous <laughs> puma um approaches carver and tries making conversation with him about religion Corbett does his best to escape and approaches Federman, who's pretending to be a parent with a pram, and he tells them they're doing a poll about religious habits and attitudes. Federman tells him he's been a practicing Buddhist all his life. Corbett approaches Crodder, who also tells him that he's a Buddhist. There's not a lot of us in Nuneaton, you know. <laughs> Puma approaches him and asks him the time. That's one of these things that he keeps doing, is his approach. Going, oh, have you got this very kind of like a Basil Fawlty esque moment? It's like, oh, have you got the time again? And he's like trying to calm, it's trying to get away from him. And then he nearly walks headfirst into Tanya's breasts, which is, uh, I guess, the, the line that we keep <laughs> coming back to, isn't it? Of this sort of smutty kind of end of the pier comedy. So she's Church of England, but that's only since she was married. She used to be a Buddhist, says Corbett, <laughs> finishing her sentence for her. The news announces that there's a strong reaction from the people of Nuneaton to the news that 42% of its population are practicing Buddhists. Big Chris Morris, big Chris Morris vibes to the way this piece to camera is shot. A very reminiscent of a, uh, a Ted Moore brass eye piece to camera. Um, again, yeah, would be surprised if that hadn't influenced him in some way for the day-to-day and Sprasso. Yeah, definitely with him, obviously working with Peter Cook and think a big Peter Cook fan, Chris Morris. And I like the, uh, the Vox Pops as well with the people of Nuneaton looking very uncomfortable. Always good fodder Vox Pops, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So now we have the leader of the opposition and conservative Tom Hutchinson, which is Ronald Fraser, who condemns the government over the incident. He blames opinion poll firms operating without proper control. On the roof of a building, Rimmer has been interviewed uh, for TV by Hench, who's asked him if this means that we're putting too much trust in opinion polls. Rimmer disagrees, but says it does bring into question the sampling methods of IOP. Hench asked him why they should believe his methods are more reliable. Rimmer says he wants to be judged on results. At the forthcoming by-election, Rimmer wants to guarantee their forecast will be within 1% of the result. Nis calls Rimmer a bloody idiot and asks him how the hell he can guarantee 1%. Rimmer says, we'll just ask everybody. (laughs) (laughs) 
So now we see men armed with clipboards knocking on doors to foreboding military music. Crodden knocks on a door and it's the same housewife who dragged him into the house earlier. He tells her that he's doing a survey on voting habits and she pushes him into the house again. The by-election result is about to be announced and Fairbank Paul has predicted a conservative victory by 4.1%. And it's right. So now we have... St- Hold on to Fairburn. Oh, and, and the Conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely little hint there of what's to come. That uh, this is the, suddenly the story is all about Peter Cook. It's all about Michael Rimmer. It's not about who voted for who. It's not about where the balance of power is shifting, except that the balance of power is shifting towards Michael Rimmer. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And now we're at the Zoological Gardens where we've got a vicar who's got a mobile church on the back of his car. You know, if people won't go to church, then church will go to them. And Rimmer is holding an event there and greets Tom Hutchinson along with the vicar whose hand Rimmer ignores, refuses to shake the vicar's hand, which I did like that little detail. The vicar asks Rimmer how the survey is going and Rimmer tells him that he's found the reason for declining attendances. The vicar says they've tried everything bringing pe- to bring people back to the church. Pop groups, bingo, hallucinogens on the wafers. But it turns out that it's God. God's keeping people away from the church because 73% of the population find it very difficult to believe in him. We now have a brilliant reveal where Ferret is now the waiter, following Rimmer around with the drinks train holding the vicar's hat. And the vicar is going to try and phase out God as part of the worship to see if it helps. Nis hands Rimmer a dossier, and it's all about the merits of the Prime Minister and Hutchinson as leader of the opposition. Cold, tedious, uninspiring. It's not so good over the page. And then <laughs> we've got Ronald Fraser. Who for me it might be one of the weaker performances of the film. I don't know how you guys felt about it. It's a bit more of a cartoon than some of the other more um, subtle, more integrated performances. Mm. Uh, but again, when if you have Edward Heath in your mind, then what Ronald Fraser's doing might seem more appropriate. Right? Yeah, maybe it's because I don't know that. I've you know, seen too much of Ted Heath. So. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with Ted Heath and, and how he came across on television as with Harold, uh, with Harold Wilson. So when the Harold Wilson character turns up, mm. he might as well be wearing a sign on his head saying, I am Harold <laughs> Wilson. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it, that one's so on the nose, isn't it? Hutchinson bemoans the results, saying it's all well and being, being warm and lovable, but what the country needs is some tough thinking. Rimmer agrees and says that he'll help Hutchinson and they'll only publish the positive aspects of the poll. Hutchinson asks Rimmer if he ever thought about going into politics because there's always a seat available to the right man. That, I mean, that you can imagine that's constantly being said to uh, potential MPs by, uh, by political parties, isn't it? You know, the, the, the parachuting... It's, yeah, it's still going on. So Rimmer coaches Hutchinson through his speech for the party conference, and we now see some hippie students protesting against the police. Nis is talking to their leader, an Asian man who gathers the hippie students around him. He tells them that next week the Conservatives are holding the National Party Conference. So yeah, cut to the conference with the slogan, you'll never have it better. Hutchinson (laughs) is welcome to the stage. The protesters are in the auditorium and start throwing fruit at him while singing. And they're about to be thrown out when Hutchinson stops them. He believes in freedom of speech. He only wishes they did. And there's a there's a weird bit here because the the uh, the way this is set up is that this has all been carefully staged and planned and rehearsed. There's a lovely line later on uh, where Hutchison says, I'm not saying this was the work of the Labour Party, but it did seem like it was organised <laughs> uh, while looking at the man who organised it. Um, <laughs> 
But then there's a weird bit where uh, it goes wrong, and there's an old lady who isn't part of the setup who gives him the wrong feed line, and he carries on regardless, yeah. and nothing comes of that. Yeah. And I think on first viewing, you sort of go, oh, well, that's like it's a mistake, that's a missed opportunity. We should be seeing Rimmer scrambling to put it right, but the point of the film is the rise and yeah. rise of Michael yeah. Rimmer, and when things go wrong, it actually doesn't matter, and that's sort of the point. Mm. So once again, what would in almost any other film be a negative is turned into a positive. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that him giving the pre-prepared answer about um, no, it's all about it's about unemployment to a woman asking a question about pensions, isn't it? And, yeah, yes, and it works just yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, yeah, and then we have the bit where he kind of slams his hand on the small canister in his handkerchief, which sets him off like crying, and it swears the whole room with his uh, sincerity, setting everybody off. And then Hutchinson is interviewed on TV by Hench who uses us to blame Labour for the heckling. Rimmer and Nisk give each other a knowing glance. So we're now walking along the pier in Brighton, and Hutchinson asks Rimmer what the next plan is. And Rimmer says that he needs to sort out his personal life before they do anything else. He's thinking of getting married. He's just not sure who to. An MP needs a wife. In this, this section in Brighton, there's one of my favourite shots in the film is the is the Michael Rimmer reflection in the window, looking into the studio where Hutchinson is doing his um, his interview. It's gloriously sinister. Yeah, so he asked Nis for the results of the poll. The Queen is number one, and the second most popular girl in the country is show jumper Pat Cartwright. Rimmer is now at the stables where he meets Pat, who's very jolly hockey sticks, and she invites him for a drink, and her parents would love to meet him. He declines, he has to see the Prime Minister, but invites her out for dinner instead. I love the, him dropping the Prime Minister, oh, I've got to go and see the Prime Minister, but, you know, maybe next time. He, so he meets the Prime Minister, like you said, he's very Harold Wilson-esque, and then um, he also asks him, have you ever thought about going into politics? The same thing, yeah, there's always a seat for the right man. Um, and he obviously he, he persuades. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, so I'm going to call him Harold Wilson. But he, he persuades him. <laughs> Blackett, Blackett, I think that's he's right. And he persuades yeah. him to be on television more. Uh, the phrase "fireside chat" uh, owes uh, something to FDR, uh, who would uh, use that phrase to describe talking to the American people on the radio. Um, but it, it's kind of, it's about the increasing importance of the media, about television, about the way in which politicians communicate to the voters uh, yeah the gag of uh, telling him he needs to be seen more and then uh, every time he appears his poll ratings go down is a lovely one yeah Greece will go on the tv more twice a day by the sounds of it which i like because we have the bits where he's turning up at the tv studio and i go oh, oh god back again <laughs> uh yeah and then we have a uh, rimmer um cuddling up to Pat on a very 60s futuristic kind of chair and says he's never seen a man dig his own grave before. He undoes the zip on her top and she tells him that she can't. She's got the Olympic heats tomorrow. And he says, I've got the Olympic heats tonight. And now they're in bed and Pat thinks that she's achieved a new personal best. Some lovely uh, uh, Olympic language jokes. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And then she, she doesn't do well in the event the next day because she's got uh, some sort of uh, abdominal problem. So uh, uh, as well as being uh, possessed of this remarkable ability to get anyone to do whatever he wants, uh, it seems as if Marco Rimmer uh, is also blessed in other departments. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have Ferret who turns uh, the TV off. And on the, set, on the top of the set, we have homemade labels of crudely drawn in felt tip for Fars Ale Beer, which... I really like that. It's called committing to the bit. Yes. 
and it, it did uh, that was the next bit that really made me laugh out loud as well yes yeah. having like i said i did, i i was disappointed in that joke first time round but because they were committing to the <laughs> bit it it made it all the more funny yeah it made it worth it and then his his wife enters a room and asks where it's all gone and then we have this cut out to the wide and all the furniture's been sold and he tells her oh, it's in the furniture shop being repaired being repawned yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he goes i i prefer it like this you know a great feeling of space as well <laughs> so now we have this croquet game that's going on at pat's family's estate rimmer tells hutchinson that what he's going to decide the issue is the race issue and he says that they need to be tougher on immigrants and hutchinson says that they can't be any tougher than the labor party we can't let in less than zero and then we have the Shadow Home Secretary, uh, Sir Eric Bentley, who is due to retire soon. And Rimmer thinks it would be a good idea to let him express his real views. Hutchinson isn't convinced the man's a lunatic. Rimmer pushes the idea that Sir Eric makes a grossly inflammable speech and Hutchinson can then sack him and then emerge as a man of principle while still being harsher on the immigrants and the socialists. Yeah, this is not a subtle film, no. <laughs> uh, and this is not uh, satire which uh, invites you to ponder its issues, but again, it's the very clear-eyed way which Peter Cook just says these unspeakable things uh, and these, these horrific truths, which just gives it this incredible impact. And it wouldn't be the same impact if it was a different performer who could, uh, you know, who could act. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was, when Peter Cook just says it, it's bone-chilling. Yeah, Hundred percent. They they talk about it, um, <clears throat> in relation to this character as well, not being able to uh, use this to sack him as it's as it's kind of hearsay. And I'm I'm thinking, well, you know, hearsay stories constantly getting reported on Rolling News. He said it wouldn't stop anyone from reporting <laughs> something like that now, would it? And the one character in this film who has a conscience, uh, Hugh, comes in and then and remonstrates uh, with Hutchinson, and he has one of my favourite lines: uh, "I will act." In fact, on matters of principle, I am acting the whole time. <laughs> is this um, is this the Richard Pearson character? Have we, have we got to yes, yeah. I think so. So he, yeah. I mean, he. I, I noticed him straight away. The, the thing I noticed him for was Gary's dad from Men Behaving Badly. <laughs> like, oh, I of always uh, remember him as his guest appearance as that. I love this character. I think this might be my favourite character in the in the whole film. Because he's he's so reminiscent of the kind of the media styled nice Tories that you, that every now and then the uh, the media will try and pick up at see look they're not also you know your kind of your Rory Stewarts or your before that your Hesseltines and your Ken Clarks and he you know he he's the one who who has a conscience but not really quite enough to actually do anything. Yeah, I like the little in joke of the. Uh the Budley Moore Conservative Association <laughs> where Sir Eric gives his speech to two people. Uh, and like you said, uh, the shadow cabinet, Hugh Wilting, uh, rushes in and complains because they don't want to be seen as a party of racists. So Eric is resigning and Rimmer will take his spot for the next general election. Uh, Hugh Wilting is going to speak out. He can't be muzzled. And in the next scene, he's beaten up by a black man. And then we have this really funny identity parade where all but one of the participants, they're all white, apart from the one guy, and they'll have to say, hello, whitey. And he, yeah, and again, like because he wants to be seen as the, the good guy, he desperately doesn't want to finger this guy, does he? But yeah, has to. And 
I, this isn't too bad. I think you, you can you can see a lot more uh, clumsier racial humor than this in other areas, and I think it's it's hardest in the right place. I do think it feels a little a, a little clumsy. Uh, a little, a little awkward. Rimmer marries his trophy wife Pat. Their honeymoon will be in Budley Moor, and Pat complains to Nis in her home gym that she hardly ever sees Rimmer since the wedding ceremony. Nis tries it on with Pat, saying all this exercise can make one feel quite randy. Pat doesn't really like this and looks quite uncomfortable. And this is the one time where anybody asks, "Who is Michael Rimmer? Where did he come mm. from?" And it's never answered, and it, it's sort of helpful that it's raised. But I think even as it's being raised, we know we aren't going to suddenly have some flashback and see uh, uh, somebody playing the young Michael Rimmer and find some formative origin story. Which would again, can you imagine how awful that would be? Yeah, that would. Yeah, be. and it, it, and she, uh, skipping ahead a little bit, she's the only one who gets anywhere near close to stopping him as well, isn't she? Mm. Yeah, but even she, even she gives up yeah. and uh, ends up going along with him because it's actually in her own best yeah. interests. Exactly. Yeah, and then this is what sort of the first time when this or anyone really talks about Rimmer's character. You know, he says he's, he, he's there's a calculated side to Rimmer. He's, he's quite disturbing. And then Nis presses her for uh, info on Rimmer, but she doesn't know anything. And then Pat realizes that Nis can't stand him as well. And then at first he agrees and then he backtracks. So now we have another TV appearance from the Prime Minister. So this scene where he's walking on a treadmill with a screen behind him, make it like he's taking a, a morning stroll out in a leafy suburb, urging the public to vote in next week's general election. He's about to tell the audience at home what the Labour Party stands for when the auto queue runs out and he gets all befuddled and loses his rag and tells them to sort it out. It turns out this is live TV. So shocked, he loses his balance and flies off through the screen behind him. And this is all. This is about the increasing levels of uh, like the literacy about TV mechanics uh, that was that was coming up. It wasn't a mystery anymore. There wasn't the same mystique about it. It's what you were saying about uh, the way that that was the way that was was shot, where you could see cameras in the, the shots of other cameras uh, and all that kind of thing. So uh, you'd have to explain what an autocue is and how it works. Even in 1969, when this film was made, an audience can be expected to just know that and know that this is a thing that could go wrong. Back in Rimmer's home gym, he's chilling out as Hutchinson appears from the sauna. Rimmer wants to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. Hutchinson isn't quite so sure about this. Rimmer tells him a man's personal life should be his own business. He has photos of the soon-to-be Chancellor in a compromising situation. The Continental Pig! (laughs) Says Hutchinson (laughs) on viewing the photos. It's the same man who was upside down in the dominatrix's wardrobe wearing stockings and suspenders. The Shadow Chancellor resigns and Rimmer takes his place and the Tories use the video of the PM flying backwards through the screen as part of their party political broadcast. Nis is playing a suggestive game of Scrabble with Pat and she says no to his advances and now we have Hench who's presenting the election grandstand. Uh, For a... Most of the film, all the jokes are so quick fire. This Scrabble joke felt like it was such a long <laughs> setup to get to what wasn't that bigger, that interesting a point. I I put at this point as well is that she seems to be uh, Rim's wife seems to be the only that's the only kind of bit of female agency <laughs> in the entire film mm. is her is her telling him no basically and 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 then later later on kind of trying to stop Rimmer. Um, and when I said that to my partner, she said, oh yeah, but uh, don't forget about the dominatrix as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
Very true. There, there is a tiny bit of interiority uh, to um, Denham Elliott and um, uh, what's her name's um, characters, the, uh, the um, Polster and the Showjumper. They, there's just a hint, and it's all in the playing, not in the script, that they might actually have feelings for each other and there might be something a little bit warmer and a bit, a bit more tender going on there. It doesn't last very long. And I think maybe that's the reason why that Scrabble scene is a bit slow and a bit clunky because they're, they're kind of groping for that. And then unfortunately, the scene in which that is better expressed is also the scene in which there is the gratuitous nudity. Mm. Yeah. News comes in that Michael Rimmer has held Budley Moore with a, with a greatly increased majority of 17,000. Labour lose the election. At an emergency meeting about the state of the economy, Rimmer arrives by helicopter. Obviously, all of that, um, all that TV election stuff is going to be reworked in short order by Cleese and Chapman for Monty Python. Yeah. This is largely, as I predicted, except that the silly part of one. <laughs> I think this is largely due to the number of votes cast. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I always remember that when they were kind of going to conservative, uh, silly party, and the kind of the voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like there's going to be a run on the pound and the economy is in a disastrous situation. To fix it, Rimmer plans to honour the campaign pledges of lowering taxes and increasing pensions. Hutchinson tells him that no one expects that of us. The normal routine is to say that we're all staggered and horrified and blame it all on the last lot, which I think the uh, Conservatives have been doing for the last 13 years. I was going to say, that was the, <laughs> yeah. the only bit of Conservative policy here that wouldn't be, so much of this film you can take from 1970 and airdrop into what's happening now, but the raising pensions, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've long since dispensed with the need to have to pretend to care about pensions, haven't they? Rimmer says he'll sort it out and they should just sit back and do nothing for two weeks, but plan a meaningless summit to create the idea that they're actually doing something. Hutchinson goes to America where he has to wait in line to see the president. A brilliant joke. Yeah. Yeah, I really I'm like a that. I'm fan of this. Uh, just quickly going back to the election coverage, one thing I really liked was the, the, the running joke about Clitheroe wanting to be the first to declare. Oh, and, yeah. then, yes. and then being yeah. the last to declare after the election's already been declared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then we had Frank Frank Thornton as well with a nice little cameo. Yes, Captain Peacock. Rimmer plans on cutting the cost of defence by a million pounds a year by just using videos of models to show the supposed superpower the UK has at its disposal, while increasing the salaries of the heads of the armed forces by 100%. Colonel Moffat isn't very happy. He isn't bothered about the money. He joined the army for the killing. And Rimmer tells him that Britain needs gold and the Swiss have a lot of it, which is where you come in. This is Julian Glover, isn't it? Who I didn't recognise at first because he seems to have been a kind of perpetual state of late middle age right up until Game of Thrones. It's like, oh, yeah, he, he looks very young there. At the Biological Warfare Research Centre, Rimmer inspects the Union Jackali, the latest germ for peace. There's no known antidote. It's a highly concentrated form of the British common cold and acts in seconds and leaves no trace. This, I think, is the, the weakest part of the film. Uh, I, I think uh, this, this doesn't make me laugh very much. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of ambition on display in the way it's, some of it's being shot. Uh, even, uh, I gathered, um, uh, revisiting the same castle in Austria, which was used to shoot where eagles dare. Ah, okay. uh, but... but all the germ warfare stuff just feels a bit kind of Austin Powers to me, if not actually Monty Python, <clears throat> funniest joke in the world. Yeah. There's a couple of funny lines in the build-up to it when they're talking about the grave financial situation whilst drinking champagne and, and, and the <laughs> yes. oh, I must make a call to my wife in Zurich. 
Yes, yes. I like <laughs> those that. bits. Yeah. yeah. Um, definitely. But yeah, but I, I know what you mean, Tom, that this bit, it, it, I, I feel like we're on this kind of race to the end by this point where you kind of feel like they're trying to wrap it up and maybe they take less care with this stuff. But I can't believe how fast-paced the jokes are at this point. I, I, I do, you know, the, at the very least find that impressive that they're still managing to get so many jokes and at such a high, high <laughs> rate. Yeah, the, the joke per minute ratio isn't bad, uh, but uh, I think you have to be satisfied with uh, never mind the quality, feel the width. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and again, some of this stuff has lost currency a bit, no pun intended, uh, because we don't really hear much about the gold standard anymore. Uh, and you know, before before currency trading was a thing, if you wanted to change dollars to pounds, basically what you did was you bought gold with your dollars. Ah, uh, okay. Imported the gold <laughs> and then sold your gold for pounds, and thus you turned dollars into pounds. Uh, so gold reserves were very important. And of course, this is also about North Sea oil, which had been discovered, in, I think, in the 50s, around about this time is really starting to, to turbocharge the UK economy. Yeah, well, we we have Hutchinson finally gets in to see the president. He's there for a matter of seconds before leaving again. And then we have this thing where he gets off the plane and tells the press that his talks with the president were wide-ranging, full and exhausting. So it's a great payoff <laughs> to that joke. Yeah, I it's like brilliant. That. Yeah, definitely. And then Rimmer and the armed forces plan to use the germ attack against the Swiss, otherwise known as Operation Cuckoo, the army invade on skis and in kilts and kill off the Swiss army with the Union Jackalay. They steal the gold and leave graffiti linking the crime to Egypt. Hutchinson is part here on an oil rig telling the world that the gold was found in a brand new North Sea gold field. He lifts it above his head to show the world but loses his balance. Rimmer then gives him a push to send him overboard. Pat tells Rimmer that she wants a divorce. I think this is a bit where... The gratuitous nudity, I think, is yep. this, where she's in the bath with nothing on, and we can see her boobs. And yeah, she te- Pat tells Rimmer that she wants a divorce. He asks her why, to put it in terms he'd understand. Sexually speaking, they're 70% below the national average. He says that she shouldn't pay attention to one month's figures and that seasonal variations can be very misleading. Pat threatens him by telling him that she could go on TV tonight and tell the world where the North Sea goal came from. Rimmer locks her in the bathroom and asks Nis to watch her. Rimmer leaves. I like the way there's, there's never any sort of anger. There's, he's just so cold and sinister and calculating. It's just perfect. I love the obit stuff of the Prime Minister. It's the, 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 the picture, the backdrop picture of him with the goat is brilliant. I, it just Man with animal in picture is always, it's so, I'm thinking <laughs> of like the, in the Alan Partridge book with the, the sleeve notes and the, the kind of publicity pictures of him, him with a Labrador, that, that kind of stuff always makes me laugh. And then there's another joke about the, it, there's a quote from the president, isn't there? Uh, during his obituary show saying that, uh, he had a really good working relationship with him, something like yeah. that. This is always a, a fertile seam to mine for humour. Do you remember the not the nine o'clock news gag about this with uh, Mel Smith and um, Rowan Atkinson as politicians of different stripes, uh, and Rowan Atkinson dies while Mel Smith is in mid-sentence, forcing Mel Smith to. This is the kind of man who <laughs> will be deeply missed. <laughs> <laughs> Devoted parliamentarian and a close personal friend. <laughs> and the, the vicar who's no longer wearing his collar. I'd forgotten about that character. I suddenly remember when he starts talking about God. Oh, yes, that's who that is. Because there are so many characters in this film. Pat tells Nis that she loves him in a bid 
for him to let her out. She says that if he lets her out, he can have sex with her. He lets her out and she runs straight to the phone. As she's dialing the number, Nis turns on the TV. Rimmer is giving a speech. She's now the new leader of the Conservative Party. Opinion polls have been nationalised due to the danger of the private sector misusing them. Nis has been promoted to the chairman of the polling board. Rimmer says as leader, he wants to consult the people on every major issue. There will be a referendum for the people to decide so they can enjoy a real democracy. The post office deliver piles of papers for the public to vote on and the post office is threatening to strike. I do love all this bit of the the letters and the the the, the couple from earlier. Yeah, his, I, I wrote down a line that he says that I, I found particularly hilarious. Was, I think I was right to take a firm line on China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, I think, is the, the film's absolute masterstroke. I think if everything up until now had been a bit meandering and silly, but we'd still had this final sequence where he goads the British public into making him dictator, I think this film would still be worth watching. And as it is, I think, apart from a couple of lapses, there's so much other good stuff up until this point that 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 kind of not quite final, that kind of anti-penultimate sequence is so strong and so, I think even today, just devastatingly satirical. Mm. Well, yeah, especially, you know, everything we've had with referendums and elections and everything over the last few years, and then you watch this film and it's just perfect and the piles and piles of referendums that are coming through people's doors. <laughs> yes. And there's a thing on top of the TV, isn't there? There's like an alarm to say, we've got another yeah. referendum for you to vote on. Um, I, I like the line... Um, when they're talking about what's more boring than regional development, <laughs> yes. water pollution. And obviously these are two quite hot potatoes at the moment that are still being completely sidelined, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, not uh, being given the, the platform that they should be. And then the public starts to protest against the new democracy. Post boxes have been blown up and 20 postmen have chained themselves to the railings outside Buckingham Palace. Rimmer records a message to the people on a beach telling them he's sorry for getting the public to vote for everything. They now need a more streamlined presidential government. Hugh, is it Whitling, the yeah, the, the shadow chancellor, oh, he's now the chancellor, protests that this new referendum is a dictatorship. Rimmer tells him that he has the option to vote against it. And it's now that President Rimmer has 82% of the vote of people in favour of the new regime. It's a celebration for President Rimmer on the streets of London, which is very similar to like a royal wedding or jubilee. Rimmer and Pat are taken through the streets in an open-top car. In a high-rise flat, Ferret leans out of the window with a sniper rifle. Hugh is running through the crowd with a bomb, ready to throw it at the car. Ferret falls out of the window, lands on Hugh, stopping the assassination. We hear the explosion and the sound cuts out as Rimmer smiles menacingly at the camera. The end. And this is this is filmed to deliberately echo the Zapruder footage. And again, even even like six, seven years after the Kennedy assassination, it still was pretty raw. Uh, and it's pretty ballsy to do that. It seems a long time ago now. We've probably all seen other spoofs and or recreations, but it was it was raw in 1969. I, ever the optimist, I knew it wasn't going to happen. I'm, I'm just willing Arthur Lowe to get the, get the <laughs> shot off. <laughs> it's, such, it's such a sinister ending, isn't it? It's uh, but it's the only it's the only way you can end up. Uh, but but my final note after the when the end credits go up is brilliantly depressing. Or gloriously <laughs> yes. depressing, because it's so, it's just so familiar. All of it's so familiar, and that's the the greatest strength of this film. I, I went into this film no 
pretty much knowing that I was going to admire it and that I was going to think, yes, this, this is a, a a brilliantly done satire. But I was worried, especially after the first, as I said, first five or ten minutes, I was worried that I wasn't actually going to find it funny enough. But then that's just completely blown out of the way. It's just joke after joke after joke. It's such a a tough thing to have. I mean... Tom, we're going to rank this against some of the films we've we've, we've done uh, against lesbian vampire killers. <laughs> it's not a fair fight, really, it is it? Completely churlish because this is this is the first film. This is our sixth film now, and it's the first film that's actually about something. But also, I can see this is not a film for everybody. Uh, you know, I think if you know if if we were watching, oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, if we were watching Some Like It Hot and you said it was boring, I don't think we could be friends. Yeah, uh, I, I would but, never say uh, that. No. <laughs> but uh, I, I could totally, there's a lot of things that people would go to the movies for that they will not find in this film. A lot of things which have dated, a lot of things which don't seem terribly relevant anymore. And uh, I would get it if somebody didn't like it. That doesn't stop me loving it. And I'm delighted to hear that you guys loved it too. Uh, but I think it is it is tricky and it is difficult to watch something which was groundbreaking and innovative uh, you know, decades after it was made. And, and yeah, groundbreaking and innovative um, and it, even prescient alone wouldn't have been... Uh, enough if it wasn't for how really really funny it is and uh, and, and the joke rate and i mean it, uh, yeah i'm i'm left in admiration of just how how difficult a job that is to to balance those three four or five things all at once i think one of the funny things coming back to it even like 10 or 15 years after it was made is it becomes a, a film in which lots of very famous people did early work. It's an early script by John Cleese and Graham Chapman before Python. It's kind of in the middle of Peter Cook's early period uh, as he's, uh, as we discussed, attempting to break into Hollywood. And then I think what part of what happened with its release was because it was delayed, well, they were all off doing other things. They weren't available to promote it because you know, David Frost was in America, uh, Cleese and Chapman were on to Monty Python by that stage. Well, there's actually a quote, a quote from John Cleese um, to, talking about it in a, a New York Times article I uh, read about the, the 50th anniversary of the film. And he's talking about at the time, he, I went to a club in Mayfair for a little drinks party to celebrate the opening, and that was it. It just faded away. I never thought the film was that strong, um, and that was very much coloured by the fact that it made no public impact at all at the time. When you're young and something you're working on doesn't make an impact, you tend to presume that you should just forget about it. But perhaps I was too harsh in my own judgment. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that, yeah, like you say, and that they were busy doing other things. I would, I mean, this is going to be an extremely controversial statement, and I I'm guessing neither of you two will agree with me, but from my memories of the Python films, I would say I prefer this to all three of them. Oh, wow. I, 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 That's, no. I wouldn't agree, but I do love this film. But <laughs> This is a bit where I usually talk about legacy, and it, a, a lot of um, the legacy of this film has already been covered, obviously, with it, it predicting the result of the election and then, you know, a, a false start in that sense. Um, I, I'd say a big kind of legacy would be touched upon it with certain aspects. I think people like Chris Morris must have been hugely influenced by this kind of thing. Uh, Andy Inucci, it's also it's quite easy to forget that this is quite a long time before Yes Minister. Yes Minister came a long time after this as well. And although it's you know, in a very different kind of style, I would say 
kind of paved the way for programs like that. Mm. Uh, I say the character of Michael Rimmer was either kind of consciously or unconsciously a bit of a kind of template for identikit politicians of the of the late eighties and noughties. Pretty much all of our lifetime guy, or certain certainly the the amount of time we've been politically active a man who stands for nothing and makes no real lasting imprint but can take advantage of apathy data pr etc to make inroads in politics and in fact kevin billington agreed with me he said in this same new york times article rimmer was somebody who wasn't left or right he didn't represent anything at all he was in a funny way the future he was very good looking but there was nothing there and i'm thinking with that quote you could be talking about Keir Starmer, Tony Blair, yes. Yes. Yeah. David, Co- David, David Cameron. Cameron there, yeah. 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 Nick, Nick Clegg, certainly. Um, so I think, you know, that's the almost a kind of blueprint for, for this type of politics, isn't it? Which is arguably one of the most depressing things about its, about its <laughs> legacy. What do we feel about this, the state of satire since as well? I mean, it, this is kind of... In, in your reading research, you talk about this being the end of the of the satire boom. Do we think? I would say satire has 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 died once or twice since then as well. Yeah. And I think we're living through quite a bit of a quite a dearth of satire at the moment. I was probably since the Cameron years, you know, kind of since the last last series of the thick of it. I mean, I I, th- I think a lot of people would make the argument that that politics these days is beyond satire and i i don't i don't mm. fully subscribe to that i i would say also that kind of some of the satirists of when we were growing up and and, and the 80s sorry yeah the 80s 90s and noughties have kind of if anything if i'm being harsh have been subsumed a bit by the political establishment and the, you know in some cases fighting on fighting on their behalf so i, I kind of i worry for the state of satire sometimes i always have a bit of a problem with have i got news for you as much as i enjoyed it they brought around boris johnson and his rise so i think without without him being such a comical character on that show maybe you know he wouldn't have had the impact that he did i'm not i'm not sure but i think even things like the mash report don't feel as biting as things like the day to day did 20 years before it and things like that it all feels kind of diet coke satire Ranking-wise, I think this is going to be the quickest ranking we've ever done, isn't it? I mean, yeah. as I said, I think it's it's churlish to kind of com- compare this to the other kind of flimsy, if you like, films we've done so far, even though, you know, we enjoyed we enjoyed Mike Bassett and we enjoyed a lot about The Parole Officer. Obviously, the same can't be said about Lesbian Vampire Killers and, um, and Mad About the House. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing you're with me here, Guy. Uh, that this is going straight to number one with a bullet? Yeah, no doubt about it. No discussion. It is our number one film. Tom has very kindly written our quiz questions for us. Uh, I have. Week, which is how we're going to uh, wrap up the episode. We are currently delicately poised at 11 points each guy. So uh, let's see which way which way it swings at the end of episode six. Uh, all right, so question one on Kevin Billington. Name uh, one other film or television production directed by Kevin Bellington. Uh, okay, let's let's go with Alan Wicker's Down Mexico Way. <laughs> yes, that's fine. Yeah, I think it's just Wicker Down A Mexico Wicker Way, Down but I'll accept it. Yeah. Uh, on David Frost, which former US president did David Frost interview in a series of television programs, which were the subject of a stage play by Peter Morgan? Richard Nixon. 
is correct. Uh, and uh, the, yeah, so on Kevin, Kevin Billington again, which famous playwright was also Kevin Billington's brother-in-law? Uh, Harold Pinter, who features Harold in Pinter. the film. He does. Um, on David Frost, what is David Frost's middle name? Oh God, I did, I did look at his Wikipedia earlier. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it like Terence. It's, I'm not quite sure how you, how you pronounced it, but it's Paradine. Oh. And he named his production yeah. company Paradine Productions. It could be Paradine, Paradin, I don't, I'm not mm. sure, but Paradine was how I, I would initially pronounce it. Kevin Billington's 1971 film, The Light at the End of the World, was based on a 1905 classic adventure novel by what French writer? Uh, this was something that I read in his obit, and it's uh, Jules Verne. Right? Jill Verne is correct, yeah, absolutely. Uh, David Frost, how many episodes of That Was The Week That Was were there? 75. 37, with only two series. Billington's 1979 production of Henry VIII, starring John Stride and Julian Glover, was part of what larger undertaking? Shakespeare at the BBC. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I think it was officially called BBC Television Shakespeare. But yeah, it was. It was this incredibly ambitious plan, which they did pull off, to put all of uh, Shakespeare's plays on TV in a period of about three years. By the way, Tom, I'm not going to give myself the point for that because I didn't get it. Okay, all right, fair enough. David Frost was one of the so-called famous five who launched TVAM in 1983. This was the original lineup of five presenters. They were also all shareholders in the company. Uh, name one of the other four. Um, I don't know, Sue Lawley. Good guess, but no. Uh, Michael Parkinson, Angela Rippon, Anna Ford, and Robert Key. Oh. Uh, which, uh, this is back to Billington, which TV comedy double act did he direct in a series of television shorts in 1989? Oof. Uh, I'm going to go with the two Ronnies. It was Smith and Jones, Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones. Uh, and finally, uh, this I think probably is quite a hard one. Uh, according to the Frost Report, what is a Lord Privy Seal? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> It's something to do with the toilet toilet seat or something. <laughs> <laughs> so the real answer, so Lord Privy Seal is a, a sort of uh, um, uh, honor, honorary uh, figure in Parliament. Right. Uh, but this was part of a, a fairly famous sketch, uh, if you are a student of early 1960s British television comedy, uh, in which David Frost and his writers were taking the piss out of the habit of television directors of the day wanting to pedantically and sometimes inaccurately illustrate every single thing the presenter was saying. Uh, so a Lord Privy Seal is an example of this. Uh, and uh, David Frost's words, Lord Privy Seal, were accompanied by a picture of a lord, a picture of an outside toilet, <laughs> and a picture of a seal balancing a ball on the end of its nose. <laughs> well, you got the toilet Brilliant. part of it right anyway. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, maybe, maybe half a point or a third of a point. Uh, yeah, a third of a point. Yeah, I won't take any for that, but that's very good. So that's that was that was three one to me, which takes scores to fourteen twelve, guy. And you won the last week's one, didn't you? To draw it level, but this mm. is the the biggest lead either of us has had. Two points. It goes to show how close it's been. Um, so thank you so much for for writing those questions, Tom. And no problem. thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you've uh, enjoyed revisiting. Was it everything you? I hoped it would be revisiting this film. 
Uh, yeah, it really was. Uh, you're right. Sometimes you revisit a film you remember loving, and it kind of falls to pieces in front of your eyes. And and not this time. Yeah, a, f- a few things, a, a little judged, a few things uh, funnier than other bits, a few lapses. Uh, but overall, uh, as as strong, as clear, uh, and as savage as ever. Yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah, I would echo. Well. I'd, Apart from the as ever bit, because I hadn't seen it before, I would uh, yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. Uh, is there anything that you want, would like to plug and tell our listeners where you can be found? Yeah, I've got a few things on the go at the moment. So uh, since January 2022, I have been watching one episode of Star Trek a day in an attempt uh, to uh, find out what all the fuss is about. Uh, and the results of that can be seen on my Twitter feed, at Tom Selensky, on my blog, tomselensky.co.uk slash blog, uh, and, and in a forthcoming book, Star Trek Discovering the Television Series, which will be out in March 2024. Um, th- we're not really producing new episodes of Best Pick, except we might do one on Everything Everywhere All at Once uh, at some point, but the original set of no, well, now 94, because we, we did do an episode on Coda, uh, episodes going through all the Best Picture winners are still there. Uh, you can go to bestpickpod.com uh, and look at those. And then there are various other episodes on various other films treated in various different ways. Uh, and then I might also add, I, I am producing uh, a show which will hopefully be coming to the Edinburgh Fringe uh, in 2024, but we'll be uh, previewing in fringe theatres between now and then, uh, which my best pick uh, colleague Jessica Regan is writing and performing, and that's called 16 Postcodes, and will be a collection of stories about all the different places that she's lived in London uh, since moving to the UK from Ireland. That sounds brilliant, and I've I've recently moved to Edinburgh. I moved to Edinburgh two months ago, so uh, very much looking forward to you coming to my new hometown with that, and I'll definitely uh, definitely be coming along to see that. Uh, Thanks again, uh, Tom, and uh, thanks for joining us. And hope we had a good time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Britcom Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritcomGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritcomGoes. And don't forget to check out the Britcom Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast and we'll see you on the next episode.